Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election and beyond. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So I am thrilled beyond measure to invite back, welcome back, friend of this pod, Skylar Baker Jordan from his grandparents' basement in, remind me, Tennessee? (laughs) Tennessee, yes. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be with you. Uh, It's great to have you back. Um, Listen, Skylar, it's been, uh, it's been quite a time, as we were just saying, the Biden, the Biden administration is moving at quite a fast clip to get their um, to get their administration staffed ahead of the uh, January inauguration. Um, so we're just going to have a little chat about that. And then uh, there's a few other things I wanted to just pick your brains on. Um, but let's let's start with that, because when last we spoke about this on the podcast, Biden had appointed quite a few foreign policy advisors and had started to roll out some of his economic team. And now the the secretaries, the the cabinet official uh, nominees are coming at a, at a fast clip. What's what's stood out for you from the nominations we've seen so far? Well, the first one that stands out is that Marsha Fudge, uh, who really was lobbying hard for the uh, USDA uh, secretary, uh, ended up at HUD, which is interesting because she had all but made clear publicly that she did not want HUD. She wanted agriculture. So that one was an interesting choice. And I, I would be fascinated to to know what thinking was there uh, and particularly how Congresswoman Fudge feels about <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought some of the other ones were 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 concerning. Um, I wrote a piece in The Independent about uh, Lloyd Austin and my opposition to his nomination for Secretary of Defense. Uh, But I also have reservations about Tom Vilsack, who is returning from the Obama administration as uh, Agriculture Secretary. Um, So there are some concerns, but there were some brilliant brilliant picks as well. I think he's nailed uh, state. He's nailed the UN. Um, So it's a mixed bag as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So let's, let's do it that way. So who's your favorite and who's your least favorite Biden pick so far? I think Antony Blinken is a really good pick for state. Um, I, I like that, that Biden has put career diplomats in Foggy Bottom and at the UN headquarters in New York. Uh, from a sort of just a personal preference, I really think that our diplomatic positions um, whether it be Secretary of State to Ambassador to the Court of St. James's to wherever, uh, should be filled by career diplomats. It, to yeah. me, it just those should be apolitical positions. Yeah. Uh, they're not typically in yeah. the United States. At least the sort of high profile uh, embassies are not. So yeah. it was it was refreshing. It's a specialist subject, right? Diplomacy is something that requires a lot of technical skill that you don't necessarily get by serving in Congress or in the Senate. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so often, you know, ambassador to Great Britain or ambassador to France or ambassador to Canada. These are seen as sort of positions that are given out as as rewards. Um, I'd say most presidents would argue with that, but that is sort of how it's viewed. Uh, and, and that is, I think, long been a problem. Uh, now, when you get into some of the smaller countries, uh, particularly countries in Africa and South America, you do tend to get a lot more career diplomats. Um, 
So I was glad to see Biden sort of elevating the career diplomats over political appointees when it comes to foreign policy, uh, especially given the state of the world right now. Um, so, so I was really thrilled with that. But I, I, like I said, I have concerns about Vilsack and I have concerns, some deep concerns about Lloyd Austin. Um, yeah, I. I- yeah, <laughs> it's it, so. The, let's talk about the Austin appointment um, because I think I. So I I think I share your concerns, but I I want to specify two separate things. As a person, as a human being, I see no reason to think that Lloyd Austin is anything other than a very capable defense specialist. Absolutely, hundred percent. Um, and I see no reason to think that personally he has ideological positions or points of view that uh, would be troubling to me in any way. I think what I am troubled by, and I'm curious if this is where you're coming from as well, is that we have in America a longstanding, I, I would call it a tradition, but enshrined in law, a law <laughs> that states that the military should be governed by civilian leadership um, and that, you know, we have, you know, it is illegal for a general or a recently retired general to become defense secretary. So in, in, people keep talking about a waiver that would be needed from Congress for this to happen. But like when they say a waiver, what they really mean is Congress would have to pay a, pass a law saying it is OK in this instance to have a retired general be. <laughs> that, that's not a waiver. That's like a new piece of legislation that would approve something that Congress previously said was illegal. And of course, Trump had already got a similar quote unquote waiver to to get made us in the same position. So it just feels like are we have we given up on that principle? Do we no longer believe that that's true? Can we talk about that before we do that? <laughs> but what are, what are your thoughts? That's my my major concern. Um, the uh, National Security Act of 1947 does include uh, language that allows for a waiver. Uh, originally, a general needed to be retired for 10 years. Uh, in 2007 or 2008, it was reduced to seven years. Uh, either way, General um I think what you said at the beginning is very important, that this is not personal. This is not about uh, General Austin. I don't think anyone can really argue that he is not qualified um, or that he lacks the requisite experience to to run the Pentagon. I think the problem is that experience is perhaps a little too recent. Uh, Well, it is a little too recent for the law. Um, There have only been two congressional waivers ever given. One was to General Marshall in 1950, and the other was, of course, to General Mattis in 2017. Uh, There have been arguments that both of those were disastrous tenures as Secretary of Defense. I don't think that needs to be the bar for deciding whether a waiver is, is, you know, appropriate or not. I think that the bar is we do have civilian control of our military. We subordinate our military to the civilian elected government. We do that in the Constitution. There's a reason that the president is commander-in-chief and not the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Our military serves the civilian government. And I am very, very concerned about the blurring of these lines. And I am afraid that we are setting a precedent that the Secretary of Defense comes from the military. And and we really need to think carefully about what that means. uh, Because... You know, the last four years have shown I, it, 
maybe not every American will accept this, but to me, the last four years have really driven home the fact that the United States is not as exceptional as it likes to think it is. Um, it is susceptible to the same sort of uh, global political movements, in this case, right-wing populism, right-wing nationalism, uh, that, that many other countries are, are susceptible to. And so when looking at what happens when the military starts to involve itself in civilian government in other countries, whether it be Pinochet in Chile, whether it be uh, the, the 1958-59 uh, coup to uh, install de Gaulle in France, you know, whether it be 2014 in Thailand, uh, you have to start getting a little nervous about where that might lead. And so yeah. I think that we need to tread lightly here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all right. And I, I think I was thinking about this because I've seen a lot of Twitter conversation about like, eh, how much does it really matter that we have civilian control of the military? Is that is that really, really important? Is this one thing going to cause that problem? And I was like, well, look, you don't have to have the worst case scenario for this to still be a bad idea. You don't right. need to get to the point where literally you've got a coup d'etat taking over the government to believe that it's not right to like make this the president. It's it's bad to me, like it's bad from first principles on a day-to-day -day basis. Because to me, I think there are two different, there's like an upwards and a downwards way in which it's bad, right? One, we like, the, what you just talked about is the kind of conventional wisdom of like, we don't want the military to feel that it's grown too powerful over the civilian leadership. And if the military feels that they take orders from their military commander rather than from the president of the United States or the civilian leadership, or indeed, if the president of the United States should collude with the defense secretary in this way, um, the, the kind of through line to the military is 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 dangerous. But I think there's a there's an upwards problem, which is that I don't see how the president, uh, the president either has to worry about this problem of separate accruing military power, or I'm not sure the president can get good independent advice from his military, you know, his defense secretary to the extent that, the, that, that, that defense secretary is, is recently ex-military or, or, or current military. Um, on, on the one hand, the big problem, I mean, Eisenhower was the one who called out the military industrial complex. There is a lot of power that accrues to the military itself and to all the institutions around it. Those institutions should not have more power than they have. I mean, I would argue they should have left, but they definitely shouldn't have more. Um, so that's one problem. It gives them more influence. But then the other problem is like if you have a defense secretary who whose entire career has been based upon rigorous, rigorous adherence to the chain of command, I'm not sure the president gets independent advice either. So if the system is working well, then what he's getting and this was my big worry under Trump, um, then what he's getting is the advice of someone who is ruthlessly determined to obey his orders at, at all costs. And I'm not sure that allows for the kind of vigorous um, cabinet challenge that you want a cabinet secretary to bring to the president with like, here are some ideas, here are some different points of view, like, let me challenge your thinking, which ideal, which ideally you would want a cabinet secretary to do. So it just feels like it's bad either way. <laughs> it's bad if it works, it's bad if it doesn't work. Well, I, I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, when you come from the military, you have a sort of different point of view than you do if you come from uh, the sort of civilian aspect of DOD or if you come from the political realm. And defense secretary is a political position. It is not a military position. You know, it has to negotiate with Congress. It has to deal with, 
you know, all sorts of different sort of political outliers. It has to coordinate with, uh, you know, defense ministers and secretaries from abroad. So there is a there is a political skill that is required for that position that I don't think generals often have, because like you said, they're very used to taking orders or giving orders. Um, and civilian leadership at DOD does not necessarily work as, as it does in the military. You know, you can't just give an order. There is going to be some questioning. Um, and ideally, the, the defense secretary would be offering advice and counsel uh, to the president and not just taking blind orders. So I, I, I worry about that. I think you're right. It's, it's not necessarily always a compatible uh, position with with military leadership. So we'll see. I mean, you know, that was part of the problem that uh, General Marshall had when it came to President Truman. He, he couldn't, he, he sort of just rubber stamped whatever Truman said, because that was yeah. sort of his mentality. And you also have a conflict there. You know, is there divided loyalty between your, your uh, sort of job as leading the Pentagon, but also, you know, yeah. What happens when when the political and civilian side disagrees with what the military side is saying? Where does the loyalty of the Secretary of Defense then lie? Because you know the the, the civilian side has to win. It has to <laughs> for our constitution and our democracy to function. The civilian side yeah. has to win. And so, what yeah. happens if if a defense secretary lets the military side of that win? And let's face it, Congress in particular, I think, has an un, has, is in the bad habit of paying undue deference to military leaders because they have the gravitas that Congress always wants to kind of glom onto. So I think there's almost a like I almost worry about how Congress is going to interact with a defense secretary who's for, who's a four star general. Like they love talking to four star generals because they're, you know, there's there's a certain sense of I don't know, machismo that goes along with it. And I, again, I think there's a certain kind of... sense of meritocracy that comes with, you know, yeah. generals, first of all, American culture in general has uh, a uniquely worshipful attitude towards its military, one that I, yeah. I haven't seen in the UK. No, um, and the UK really not. respects its troops, but it's it's a, just a different beast entirely here. Yeah, there's um, an so adulation. That, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's... Uh, so I think that naturally sort of translates to Congress. But I think also, you know, Congress looks at our generals as being apolitical. And, um, you know, that's part of where they they get their respect from is the fact that they are there because they are the best uh, qualified to be there. Um, and our military remains staunchly apolitical. And most of our top brass defend that and they do yeah. not want to be involved in politics and that is to their credit you you have some exceptions you know general flynn but um for the most part our military wants to remain apolitical and so i do yeah. wonder how top brass view you know the the blurring of this line Let's move on and talk about uh, some of the domestic policy advisors, because I want to shout out my favorite pick so far, um, which I wish she were a little younger, but in every other respect, I quite like Janet, Janet Yellen for Treasury. I'm excited about that because in her, first of all, she's like ridiculously qualified for the role. I mean, hugely oh, yeah 
hugely expert in economics, um, obviously was Fed chair. And a lot of people don't realize that during her term as Fed chair, um, one very important thing that she did was completely shift the perception of the Fed's role uh, in the government, much more in the direction of considering equality mm -hmm. as an economic measure and taking into account the fact that if rising inequality is out of control, the economy is not working as it should. And that was very right. controversial at the time, but is now kind of baked into the way that the Fed reviews the economy. And I think is, you know, so progressives, you know, I know she gets some criticism, but I actually think that over the course of her career, from the position of her, you know, world-beating expertise in our financial system she has always moved it in a more progressive direction you know in a you know in a big systematic way like a big picture um oh, yeah. you know she, so so i'm i'm really excited about that and i think that makes her a really good fit for treasury i wish she were a little younger like i say but other than that she's 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 tops in my book <laughs> well and i think um you know it, it's important to note that were Trump a normal president, <laughs> Janet Yellen would probably still be Fed still chair. Be fed chair. Um, so I, uh, that that I think is important to acknowledge that in some ways this is a I, I, I don't know that Biden was thinking this, but I see it as a sort of righting a wrong that was that was done. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Janet Yellen is, uh, first of all, she's a historic choice. She'll be the first woman to, to mm -hmm. run the treasury department, uh, just as Lloyd Austin would be the first African-American to, to run the department of defense. Um, but she's also a brilliant labor economist, you know, yes. she really is focused on, on main street and not wall street. And that makes her a very different economist than what we are used to seeing in maybe, uh, a, a Timothy Geithner sort yep. of figure. So so that makes her a very, very uh, compelling choice and a really smart one because there are very few people who can who can argue against Janet Yellen from the right or the left. Yeah. Um, she she is qualified. No one can deny that. She has uh, views that that will appease progressives, but she is not uh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, she is not even Elizabeth Warren necessarily. So yeah. I, I think that for Biden, she makes sense. Um, I lament the return of so many Obama era appointees. Um, I was really hoping to see more fresh faces. I think yeah. that that is very important, uh, not just for the cabinet, but for the Democratic Party as a whole. And yeah. Democrats are very, very bad about promoting the next generation. Um, you know, Republicans sort of kill their elders, um, but but Democ Democrats die in office. So yeah. um, I think it's, you're it's... absolutely right about that. Um, and and certainly, you know, I think the New York Times had a headline today where it was like team of rivals, more like team of buddies, because because that's what he's doing. He's just going like, who they who all like each other. Know? Yeah. And on the one level, on one level, that's that's fair, right? Like at one level, you kind of want the president to have a team of people that he works well with, gets along with. But equally, I agree with you. There is huge talent across the Democratic Party, which is not being represented in the cabinet that we've seen so far. And I know that you have particularly yeah. strong feelings about one particular young talent. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> now, Skylar oh. has written a, a lovely article um, about Pete Buttigieg um, and kind of where he might wind up. So do you want to kind of talk us through quickly what your reflections are on on, on the current state of play for Mayor Pete? <laughs> well, um, so two nights ago now, Axios reported, they, they, they got the scoop, that Mayor Pete is under consideration to... Uh, be the ambassador to China. Um, my initial reaction was, I don't know how I feel about this, but I'm leaning toward furious. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of what I tweeted. Um, I slept on it and wrote an article yesterday in which I sort of laid out the pros and cons for, yeah. Pete, for Pete specifically, not for the country, but for yeah. Pete about going to China. And then I sort of addressed some of my own um disappointment with uh the fact that he is he is sort of being shunted across the pacific mm -hmm. um and not given a more high profile position here in the united states um i i was hoping and i think from what i've read pete was hoping that he would end up at the united nations that didn't happen um and i'm not going to argue that he should have been. Um, we have a very qualified uh, upcoming ambassador there. So, and, and again, yeah, like I said, I like, <laughs> I like my ambassadors to be, you know, career diplomats, not political appointees. Um, so, you know, that's actually sort of a strike against Pete for going to China as well for me is I really think you need a, a career diplomat there, but I'm never going to win that argument in the United States. So I, I don't really <laughs> have it. Um, but Mayor Pete, you know, first of all, I mean, he, he, he's an incredibly talented young man. He is a rising star in the party. He is incredibly capable. I think he would excel at any job that he was given. Um, but there are certain jobs that play more to his strengths. He would be a very controversial pick for HUD, but I think given what he did in South Bend, he would be an amazing HUD secretary. Um, I also think that he would be very good at possibly commerce. I think that he might be a very good trade representative, although we, we know that we have a trade envoy now. Um, so, you know, there was some talk about him going to VA. I was really kind of relieved that he didn't get put there because that is, mm. it shouldn't be, but it is a poison chalice. Um, but I'm disappointed that he hasn't gotten a more high profile position. Um, I'm disappointed because I believe Pete is part of the future of the Democratic Party, along with figures like Kamala Harris. Um, but I also am disappointed as a, as a gay man because I think it's a missed opportunity. Pete Buttigieg is the first uh, openly gay person to win a presidential mm -hmm. primary or a state in a presidential primary. He won Iowa, regardless of what a certain <laughs> senator's It was close, say. but he won it. <laughs> um, but he did win Iowa. And, and, and what a fitting uh, sort of... Uh, you know, how fitting it would be for him to become then become the first openly gay cabinet secretary. And so I think a lot of us were really hoping that that Pete would 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 break that glass ceiling. Um, it doesn't look like he's going to do that. Um, and in fact, it looks like there might not be any LGBT people in this cabinet. And, and that is a bigger issue that I only sort of touched on in my article, but that has disappointed a lot of LGBT Americans. Uh, but the fact is, you know, Pete is part of the future of the party and it is about Pete, but it is also about every rising leader who continues to have 
their ambition squashed by an old guard that simply will not go away. And that is really bothering me. And then one last thing I will say is this is the unpopular thing you're never supposed to say, but I'm not a politician, so I'll say it. Joe Biden knows Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg delivered millions of voters on a silver platter to Joe Biden and really cleared the way to the nomination for him. He owes Pete. So Mm. I want to see how he's going to pay him back. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I really liked about your article was that the way that you reflected upon Pete's, Pete's possible choice. We don't even know for sure. This is all speculation. We don't even know for sure what's what's been offered or not offered. Um, but you know his personal uh, his personal decision to make because you know he has a husband who has a job and a life and they have a home and shipping off to China would be a big change for the for the pair of them. Um, yeah. They want to start a family, maybe. Um, they've yeah. talked about that. Um, do they want to start a family? Like they, the sorts of questions that, you know, ambassadorial prospects always have to ask themselves as a couple, right? Like this is a big lifestyle change. Is this really what we want? Like, and to your point, it's taking me outside of the centers of power. Like I'm not going to be hanging out in New York and Washington. I'm going to be off in Beijing and so on and so forth. So I think, I think that was all like, those were all useful reflections of, you know, what might go into it. Devil's advocate though. Let me just, let me just try and present the other side. Like let, let's, let's, you know, I have no strong point of view on this, but let me make the case for Buttigieg in China. Right. So I think you could argue, and I think many, many did argue that one of the, one of the main reasons why Trumpism happened and one of the major thrusts of the Trump administration was this looming conflict with China that I don't think necessarily the country has yet reckoned with. Trump certainly failed to reckon with it in any useful way. Um, So I think that the center of gravity in foreign policy is shifting towards China. I think for all of the reasons that you've talked about, Buttigieg's, you know, his skill, his talent, his energy, you know, the the sheer like oomph that he puts into the roles that he takes on, um, and because of China's emerging importance and indeed controversy, like the difficulty of dealing with the China problem, You could imagine a scenario where, you know, all jobs are what you make of them, right? But you could imagine a scenario where actually really taking on the China brief in a substantive way could be the making of a young politician um, and could set him up very, very well for having the kind of foreign policy heft that would make him a very plausible secretary of state candidate, for example, which he currently probably isn't because he just doesn't quite have that that level of foreign policy expertise. So that would be, the, I guess, the, the, the pro case. Yeah, and I, in my article I touched on there there are compelling reasons for Pete to to take the job um, if it is in fact being offered. You know, I think it's important to stress we don't, we don't know that for sure. You know, I I haven't independently confirmed Axios's reporting, so yeah. um, although they have been pretty on point um, yeah. so far, but um, you know. It, it, the China, you know, the Chinese brief is nothing to, to sneeze at. It is an incredibly important job. And American foreign policy has been pivoting towards the Pacific since the yeah. first Obama term. You know, I mean, this is something that Barack Obama understood um, for at least the last, I would say, 20, 25 years before maybe 2015. The sort of center of American foreign policy was the Middle East. But but those days are rapidly ending as as China emerges as let's face it, uh, a second superpower. Um, And so, you know, it is an incredibly important brief. I I don't think that it's not prestigious enough. Um, I do think that Pete would excel there. Um, And I do think somebody with his background in military intelligence in particular 
uh, could excel there, considering China's increased espionage uh, in the United States, its increased disinformation campaigns in the United States and the rest of the world. So there are there are compelling reasons for for him to take this job and for Joe Biden to offer it to him. Um, I'm not sure that I agree that it is going to be the launching pad into a greater political career. Um, I, I just don't see that ambassadors really tend to to end up, um, you know, going into the upper echelons of. of yes you know, American politics. Uh, the one exception, though, might be George H.W. Bush, who himself was right? ambassador <laughs> to China for a year. So, so and, there you know, you there go, was, and he wound up as president. And, so, <laughs> Yeah, and some people think that sending uh, Pete Buttigieg to China is a way for Joe Biden to show the Chinese that he is serious about yeah. uh, their relationship because, you know, Joe has has been very open about his admiration for Pete. Um, it is very, uh, you know, common knowledge that they are close. And um, sending someone like Pete, who is possibly a future president, could be seen as a, uh, you know, as a as a compliment to the Chinese, or as you know, a, a gesture of graciousness is what I've seen yeah. reported. And and I think there's some I think there's some truth to that. Um, whoever so, it is, if it's not Pete, it might be someone yeah, who does. Whoever that. it is, I mean, I think I think the idea that you appoint someone who's a really serious heavyweight figure close to the White House to the China brief makes a lot of sense from a foreign policy mm-hmm. point of view. So let's talk about one ambassador who did, uh, you know, continues to be uh, big on the public scene, uh, which is ambassador, former UN ambassador Susan Rice, who has yes. just, to my shock. <laughs> been appointed the head of the domestic domestic policy advisory council. So can you explain the thinking behind this? Because no. I I am really struggling to like. <laughs> does is there something about and there might be something in Susan Rice's background that makes her qualified for this position. I don't know what that is. As far as I know, she has no domestic policy expertise. None. As far as I know. So do I you mean, think she's that? A- like she's a brilliant woman. Oh huge, yeah, hugely brilliant. Like so qualified, so capable. Like I'm sure she will do the job very well. I don't know. She would have been a great Secretary of State. Well, yeah, except the Republicans. Except you can't get her through. Yeah, I know. Right? Like because of Benghazi. Benghazi. <laughs> you know? Can I tell you? A while ago, I did a. I occasionally do these media appearances. I was on Ian Dale's radio show. Those of you here in the UK will know who that is. I love yeah, well, I, let's let's catch up on this afterwards because I have a story to tell. But anyway, <laughs> I was on his radio show opposite a Republican who I will not name, but you know, a a prominent Republican who I often go opposite on media uh, appearances in the in the UK. And she, like, we got into this conversation about something, and she was just really feisty. And then the middle of like. I don't even know what we were talking about. Out of nowhere, she got really mad at me and she just shouted, Benghazi! I was like... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no! Let it go, folks. Let it go. What? 9-11! What do you even think that means? Like, what in your head is that a shorthand for? Like, for me, it means a difficult situation in which, due to unrest around our local, you know, consulate, some Americans were tragically killed in a, you know, in a possibly avoidable confrontation. Like, but in her mind, it clearly stands in for something to do with Democrats being evil. I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, I mean, they what they did is they they took it and they politicized it years ago, right as soon as it yeah. happened, and they have never ever let it go. I mean, I'm I'm telling you this, well, but like, you they know, don't this. Even bother I know to you explain know this, like, what they mean by it anymore. Like it's become such shorthand for them that like they think they can say the word and everybody because they only consume. I'm like, come on, I, I suppose we're all this way, right? Like you only consume the media that that matches your side. So in like the media world that Republicans inhabit, it's like, it's obvious. You say Benghazi and it's obvious what I mean by that. But like to the rest of us, right. it's like, I'm sorry, what's your argument again? Well, especially to a, to a UK audience, I imagine it, it, it's, it's probably one of, I'm sorry, very confusing <laughs> to just hear a, a, a word randomly, you know, shouted. Um, but, but, so, anyway, but like Susan Rice had almost nothing to do with Benghazi. At all, except that she gave an interview about it relatively early in the when the crisis was unfolding, and she didn't even get any facts wrong. She just stated what the known facts were at the time, and we later found out they were not accurate. Like, do you know what I mean? It was like if if someone comes running up to you and says, "My building's on fire," and it later turns out that the building wasn't on fire, like it, it, you weren't lying when you said, "Oh, I think the building's on fire." <laughs> like you were saying yeah. what you knew at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and but but you know that sort of uh distinction you know is lost on most republicans anymore certainly elected republicans um they you know will do anything they can to to score cheap political points uh i know we're kind of drifting off topic here but it's it bears it bears repeating that that republicans sort of live in their own fantasy land um, but anyway. that hasn't changed just because Donald Trump lost. Yeah, funny that. <laughs> um, but, but Susan I do, Rice, I, I did want to ask you a question. Yeah, go about Susan Rice. Do you think that giving her a domestic policy position might be priming her for a run for office later on? Possibly. Is that what she wants? Maybe. Maybe, maybe she does. Maybe she does want to move into elected politics, and she feels like she can't do that without a domestic portfolio. So she wants to build that out. Maybe. Um, where would she run? Like Maine. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, Susan like, Collins has to lose at some point. Six years from now. <laughs> but okay, maybe she spends. <laughs> maybe she runs for governor of Maine. Maybe she, yeah. you know, maybe okay. she runs for president in four years if Biden. Is a one-term president? I, I don't know. It's just, I, I'm. I guess I'm just trying to like grasp at some sort of narrative to explain yeah. this very left-field choice. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Um, but you know, good luck to her. <laughs> like, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. Good yeah. luck. Her success is our success, right? Like, I hope she. I hope it works. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Um, you know, she's a brilliant woman. I'm sure she can. She can study up. Like the the, oh, the yeah, president she, she trusts her. Right. Biden clearly trusts the hell out of Susan Rice, and that probably matters a lot. That's probably more that's probably it more than anything else. Yeah, I don't think he would put her there if he didn't have complete faith that she was yeah. capable of doing the job. Yeah. Right. Um, so Skylar, I think we, we let's move on to another conversation I wanted to have specifically with you because I thought you might have some really valuable perspective on it from your <laughs> Tennessee basement. <laughs> In January, the Democrats and Republicans are running in a, let's face it, live or die, make or break Senate pair of Senate elections in the state of Georgia. We won Georgia, obviously, in November, but the Senate candidates there underperformed Joe Biden, and Joe Biden won very, very narrowly. Now, 
Georgia is a really interesting state. Um, it's perhaps, you know, emblematic of a kind of a new, new South, an emerging mm-hmm. kind of yes. different Southern culture um, and, you know, changing demographics, all these kinds of things. What should we be thinking about in terms of how the South as a region has evolved and how Georgia like might be different to or similar than like different from or similar to other states in the region? Well, I think that it depends. First of all, the South itself is not a monolith. Um, The Upper South is quite different to the Deep South is quite different to South Florida. Um, So if you want to focus on sort of the Deep South, which is where, you know, Georgia lies, um, Georgia is very, very different to Mississippi, Alabama and South Carolina. Um, To begin with, Atlanta itself just just gives it sort of an outsized blue you know democratic presence compared to states like mississippi which don't have a major metropolitan area sorry jackson you're not that big um <laughs> but uh <laughs> no shade lovely town though but not that big so i think that you know in, in atlanta is is going to continue to grow it is attracting a lot of business tyler perry just opened that huge studio there uh which is you know sort of i think uh, going to change the way people perceive Atlanta. It's becoming an entertainment capital, uh, certainly probably the entertainment capital in the East. Um, So I think that Georgia is a state that is changing much like North Carolina as more uh, transplants, you know, more migrants from the rest of the country come and settle in its urban areas. I don't think that Georgia voters, you know, sort of those who were born and bred in Georgia are necessarily changing. I think that the state's just seeing a lot of people move into it and that's changing it. And it's the same throughout the Sun Belt, you know, yeah. I mean, from North Carolina on over to Arizona, um, you're seeing the same story as people start to migrate south. I mean, I think your point about the South being not a monolith is 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 very well taken. In fact, it's so well taken that I there's a part of me want that wonders if it's actually useful as a category anymore, because it used to be that Virginia, like, was a political monolithic category. Because how are you sh- how are you drawing the lines, yeah. right? Because Virginia well, I mean, is definitely the a Mason-Dixon state. doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, Virginia the cap the, the Confederate capital was Richmond. You know, yeah. and but Virginia has been solidly blue since 2008, at least yeah. in presidential politics. So, and, and you know, gubernatorial politics, both yeah, senators I mean, and Democrats. And again, you have sort of the same thing happening in Virginia that's happening in Atlanta and North Carolina, you know, except it's all concentrated in Northern Virginia around DC. Yeah. So you do kind of wonder, I mean, is the South as far as a political label even relevant anymore? I, I yeah. I think in some ways it is. I think that the culture of, say, the Tidewater um, is still more similar to the culture of the Mississippi Delta than it is the culture of Cape Cod. But, um, (laughs) you know, I I, I think so. In some ways it is a still relevant label, but I think that you're seeing in the South the same thing that you're seeing in the rest of the country, which is that the political divide is not going to be regional anymore. It's going to be urban versus rural. And yes. states that have bigger cities like Georgia are, are going to become increasingly blue. Um, it's the same thing that's going to happen in Texas. Um, it's going to become increasingly purple as Austin grows, as Dallas and Houston grow. 
Um, while states like, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan are going to become increasingly red as, mm-hmm. as you know, the, the cities dwindle and the exurban and suburban and rural populations start to carry more weight. So, yeah. Is there, is there a future for like, so I'm thinking about, you know, the states that are not trending blue, right? So I'm thinking about Kentucky, Tennessee, um, very hardcore red states, your home. Right. Your hood. Yeah. Right. Um, so places where, you know, it may not always feel great to be a gay man. Um, and you know, yeah. black people. <laughs> so those states famously, of course, don't have huge urban metropolitan areas and so forth. But is there could they Tennessee not go? Does. Tennessee does, yeah. Yeah. Well, Tennessee so, has Memphis just... and Nashville. Right. The yeah. problem is who's moving into those is, is that's what makes a difference. Okay. That's what uh, I was going to Memphis, ask. Like, is there a demographics yeah. that would yeah. change that? Well, well, first of all, Nashville, um, Nashville is a big city and it is a blue dot in the middle of a red sea. Um, Tennessee's population is, uh, and I'm not a geography expert, so I could be wrong. And if I am, somebody tweeted me and let me know. But Tennessee's population tends to be, I think, a little bit more spread out than like, say, North Carolina, where the population centers really are in the Triangle and in in Charlotte. Um, You know, Tennessee has Knoxville, Chattanooga. These are still, you know, maybe blue dots uh, comparatively, but they're still fairly conservative cities. The mayor of uh, Knox County, which is where Knoxville is, is a libertarian former or current WWE wrestler. Like, I mean, you know, th- th- this is who wins elections here. So, Somebody needs um, to write a PhD thesis on the outsized influence of wrestling on U.S. politics. <laughs> it is very interesting. Um, I was very surprised. When I moved here, I was very surprised to learn that that was the case um, and amused. Um, although he seems, you know, he seems like a nice guy. I've not met him, but from what I've seen, he seems like a jovial, nice guy. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that that's the difference. And Kentucky just doesn't have, like Louisville might be growing, but Louisville's growing because of Kentuckians moving to Louisville Mm -hmm. or Hoosiers coming over the river. It's not growing because, you know, it's attracting out of state, uh, residents like Atlanta is. Mm -hmm. It just, so these two states are very, very different, um, you know, the same way that I think Mississippi yeah. and Alabama are very different to Georgia. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you mentioned North Carolina, even South Carolina. I mean, I have family there and and they will tell me that, you know, the South Carolina they moved to from New Hampshire years ago is a much less southern state than, you know, the, like now than it was then. Um, and that, you know, that you know, there's a there's a lot of high tech businesses moving into that area. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of demographic change, you know, good universities in the region. So, you know, it, it, like there's change happening all over the place. And I think, you know, that, that kind of the north south divisions of the Civil War no longer reflect a kind of <laughs> black and white red or blue <laughs> a, 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 the clear line no, it's, it's a different the I lines are right differently. no i yeah. think you're absolutely right i think that the lines are now urban versus rural and i think yeah. they have been for you know possibly up to 20 years now um yeah. i i think that if you look at the 2004 election you really start to see uh, the sort of shifting demographics coming into play and how the divide has, has shifted into who lives where, not um, within a state, not necessarily who lives where within the country. 
Um, and so somebody from Chicago has more culturally in common with somebody from Atlanta than they do from somebody, you know, in uh, Cairo. Mm. You know, they somebody from New York is going to be more similar to somebody in Charlotte than they are to somebody who lives upstate, yeah. you know. So I, I think that that's the new reality. And it's a reality that we've not reckoned with yet. Yeah. And it's a reality that's going to hurt Democrats because land votes in America, not always people. So, you know, the Senate is composed of you know, states that have very few people. And so how are we going to compete there if we're increasingly relegated to major urban areas? Yeah. So I have like, I have like a weird bugbear about this, right? Which is that it isn't necessarily that land votes, it's that states vote, right? And so all of the political power in America is determined by who draws the state border maps. And we forget to think about states as being things that are created. Like we pretend that somehow states are things that always existed, but like, why do we have two Dakotas? We don't, we don't need two Dakotas. Like, the population of each Dakota is minuscule. <laughs> one Dakota would be enough, and it could just be a Dakota. Forget the North and South. And the reason and, we have... And it was one Dakota it, until it was, statehood. It was. it was one Dakota, and they specifically <laughs> divided it because the Republicans wanted more political power. This is this is a true historical fact. Yeah. They were like, we'd like a couple extra senators, please. Yes, please. Thank you. Right. So I just say, let's <laughs> cram the Dakotas back together. West Virginia can go back into Virginia. That might mean that the Virginia, that the wider state of Virginia goes red, but that's fine. Let's just like cram the Senate those back thing. Make Puerto Rico and D.C. state and like just fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, making Puerto Rico and D.C. states is a lot easier than merging the Dakotas or the Virginias. I know um, it's for the sheer, <laughs> Yeah, for the sheer fact that the Constitution requires that any state give its consent before its borders are changed. You know, yep. you can't just create a new state out of an existing state without that state's consent. Um, and I would assume the Supreme Court would rule the inverse is also true. You can't force the Dakotas into a... Yeah. you know, an arranged marriage unless they <laughs> they really want it. And I, I, I find I, I so I, I, you know, that's the problem. We kind of the map that we have is is the map that's going to exist for the foreseeable future. But I agree with you. I mean, I think the, sh the, the, the easiest way would be to argue for the abolition of the Electoral College, mm -hmm. um, at least in presidential politics. You still have the problem of the Senate. Um, I think the Senate represents the state's interests so that we can argue the Electoral College is no longer necessary. Um, I think we should abolish the Senate, but mm. that's a radical position that no one else agrees with. So, <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't say no one else agrees with it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, but yeah, I certainly, I, I, I'm not going to disagree I have problems with the way that American politics is structured, and certainly the Senate is a huge issue with that. I think, I think just the people of California, for example, like people talk about California as if like very dismissively of Californians, and I myself, being from Massachusetts, I'm often dismissive of Californians as you know, like <laughs> sunshiny avocado eaters, whatever. But like granola hippies, right? But why should a citizen <laughs> of the state of California be worth? so much less in political power terms, so much less, incrementally less, exponentially less than the citizen of Wyoming. It just, it doesn't, it isn't right. And why should the citizens of Wyoming 
not have anyone competing for their vote because you know the electoral college is awful because it, it's not just like yes it means wyoming is very powerful but it also means nobody campaigns there or in california right. or like most of the country is just ignored right unless you are one of the handful of states that you know swing states quote unquote you are completely ignored in in presidential politics and so i think that you're absolutely right it makes no sense but what you're talking about gets into the heart of a, a matter that has as as uh, caused division in this country since the dawn of the republic, which is federalism. You know, how much yeah. um, are we a federal republic and how much are we, you know, one nation or how much are we a collection of 50 states? And, you know, to me, the Civil War should have settled that question. We are one nation and therefore... <laughs> You know, the the federal government, uh, you know, all of us should be represented equally. It did not. Um, although what it did do is create an American identity. Yeah. So, you know, before that, you were a Tennessean or you were a Virginian or you were a Rhode Islander. Um, so we have seen shifts in the way that we think about our identities before. I just don't know if. Americans, particularly in smaller states like Wyoming, are ready to give up their their outsized influence, even though it means that they are actually, you know, their influence is is, is decreased because nobody nobody has cares to pay about attention. Either nobody way. has to pay attention to what the ranchers in Wyoming care about because nobody has to fight for their vote. Yeah. So absolutely, it's a it's a shit show. It is a shit show. Everything's yeah. a shit show. That could be the motto for 2020. Everything's a shit show. Episode title. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, Skyler, shall we play the gut check game? Yes. Excellent. I love this so, game. I have in front of me some bits of paper onto which I have written the uh, some quotes, sayings, expressions, stuff heard around the... I, I'm used to saying campaign trail, but just around US politics this week. Um, I'm going to pull them out of my trusty Red Sox baseball cap and read them out. And Skylar and I will just react to them as simple as that. It's not the kind of game you win. It's just about the taking part. Right, Skylar? <laughs> yes. It's like Ibble Dibble. Ibble Dibble. <laughs> Have you been watching The Crown? Yes. <laughs> there you go. Okay. There are no losers in Ibble Dibble. Just sober no and drunk. Well, Margaret Thatcher, apparently. Well, well yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, Maggie. oh Maggie so here's one um, I'm going to read you the quote and then I want you to guess who might have said it I never did this but it cracked me up um, this is commenting on a story that Rudy Giuliani and other Trump administration COVID patients oh, receive special access to rare drugs that are not available to the wider public quote it's one thing for the rich and powerful to get better treatment that may just be one of the realities of the world but for the rich and powerful to boast about their treatment and act as if others lacking access to it need not take care is reprehensible any wild guesses you might have said that the pope bill crystal bill crystal okay <laughs> <laughs> Neocon commentator Bill Crystal, who is a newly converted Democrat. <laughs> oh, is he a Democrat now? Well, he was in Republican Voters Against Trump and like very, very anti Trump. And like, you know, just has he's been on a journey, it's fair to say. And he's yeah. recently said 
he thinks the Republican Party just needs to die. He just thinks they're just they've just gone wrong and it needs to die. So for the time being, he's a Democrat. I do. I do think that I agree with him that the Republican Party, that that that, that principled conservatives need to break off of it, that the Republican Party is you know, of George W. Bush is a very different political party than the political party of Donald Trump. Uh, his comment, I, I find very, very dis- distasteful. I, I don't, I disagree with it. I don't think that the rich getting special treatment is just the way of the world. It shouldn't be, yeah. you know, but you know, that's the difference between a neocon and a, and a socialist, I suppose. So you know, you know, he looks at it and he says, say la vie. I look at yeah. it and I say, eat the rich. So, yeah, I mean, I'm with you obviously, but then I would be, but like, for me, it was just like, I read that quote and I'm like, you're a guy who used to go on yacht cruises with like Sarah Palin, <laughs> like, right. You know, like you're really going to sit there and talk about this. The elite shouldn't have special privileges of and, and flaunt it. That's like your whole career. That's what you do. Well, he would probably argue that he didn't flaunt it. You know, oh, that's that. the thing is his oh, problem isn't that the rich have special privileges. His problem is that they're they're crass about it. So. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think he would ar- maybe argue he wasn't crass. I would argue he was. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But yeah, like it's easy to see other people's privilege. I do wonder this emerging, I mean, we are in one of those moments in in world history where the political poles are realigning. Mm. And I do wonder what the, you know, who's going to end up in bed with who at the other side of this. 100%. It's so interesting. Because if you I told think- me that Bill Crystal was going to be voting for the same guy as me, like, <laughs> Right? <laughs> Ten years ago, like, I never I would have felt weird about like what have I done? I'd be like, where did I, I go know, wrong? I would have been like, what do you mean? I vote for a Republican, <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah, it's a weird, wild world. Um, here's another one. This is a New York Times headline that uh, just made me smile. Quote: After Trump's loss in Arizona, state Republicans hurl insights insults at one another. Subhead. A top Republican told the governor to, quote, shut the hell up. Another official described a lawmaker as a resident of, quote, crazy town. All this in a state where the party recently reigned supreme. Am I supposed to guess which paper no, that no, was in? Just like, what's your reaction? <laughs> I love it when the right cannibalizes itself. It, it saves me from having to... to... <laughs> do it um i'd love a republican headline (laughs) yeah i mean i i think that you know you had what's her name from georgia marjorie green the QAnon candidate i can't remember her full name at the moment but i mean that state has produced some insane republicans but it has also produced uh, a few principled ones that surprised me i mean i'm really you know, it, it's shocking to me the way that the governor of Georgia and the secretary of state this have is, really held firm. Oh, this is Arizona? Oh, see, it's hard to keep track. Arizona yeah, has also produced its share of crazy-ass Republicans, Joe Arpaio. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know... Um, but they're at war. They're fighting each other. The Republic... Yeah, but it's... An, it's hard to take pleasure in it, if I'm being serious, because it's so dangerous. Yeah. It's so dangerous. Like, you know, it, it would be one thing if it was Newt Gingrich and Bill Crystal tearing into one another. But, I mean, this is 
a party that is grounded in reality that I disagree with, but still accepts the same facts as me, at least. Um, and crazy people. I mean, it's 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 really really frustrating and and frightening to watch what is happening in the Republican Party because it is being taken over by crazy town. Whoever said that is 100% correct. And, you know, we can sort of laugh at those sort of fringe candidates, but the fact is they're gaining more and more power in what is one of America's most powerful institutions. And so that should frighten everyone because these people are not going away. Yeah. I want to read out the full quote. So, yeah, it's it's worrying. Like we don't yeah. want crazy people to have power in our country, and <laughs> Republicans do have power in our country. And so, if they've gone crazy, we're in trouble, right? Like that's yeah, just exactly sim- simplistically. Um, I do want to read the full quote that was alluded to in that headline. This is from uh, Daniel Scarpinato, who's a chief of staff to Republican Governor Steve uh, Doug Ducey. Um, He says, quote, we always knew you were nuts, but you're now officially confirmed it for the whole world to see. Congratulations. Enjoy your time as a permanent resident of Crazy Town. That was addressed to Representative Andy Biggs, a Trump loyalist. He is not holding back. No. But to be fair, Andy Biggs, to prompt this, what he said was he, he theorized that Governor Ducey, quote, intends to coerce people into vaccinations. Yeah, it's it's yeah. bad. You all can't see this, but I just like put my head on the desk <laughs> inside. Like it's it is a head desk. I mean, yeah, it's 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 frightening, and it's not going to get any better. Um, I don't I don't know what else to say. I'm, I'm it's a terrifying time. It ain't good. Actually, I do have one thing I would say. Notice how none of the headlines are saying Republicans in disarray the same way that they would if Democrats were at each other's throats like this. Do we have an alliteration problem? Is it just because Democrats in disarray sound good together? Like Republicans in revolution? Republicans like what? In, what is he? What do you, uh, we need to we need to make I up. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to think of something. Um, Republican. Yeah, I can't revolt? think of anything right now. Like, Republicans. Like, no, because it, a Republican revolt sounds too much like yeah, the Republican be, Revolution of right. Could be cool. Ninety four. Like yeah, yeah. Like ooh, a Republican revolt. Like it sounds like something that happened in France in the seventeen nineties. Okay, podcast listeners, this is your challenge. Get out your thesauruses, thesaurus I. Um, look for synonyms for disarray that start with an R and report back to us for next podcast. We'll be on it. Right. Should we do another one? Um, yes. Here is, okay, this is Senator Tammy Duckworth. Oh. Love her. My here she is. Oh, she's, she's awesome. Here she is commenting on the possibility of waivers for General Lloyd Austin, as we discussed earlier. Quote, I will support General Austin, but I will not support the waiver. During, a, during an interview on MSNBC, pressed how Austin could become Secretary of Defense without a waiver, Duckworth said she believed Congress would approve one. What does that mean, Skylar? Unpack that well, I, I saw, I, I actually, I saw that quote um, after she said it. And I, and maybe it's, I, I spent years in Illinois. And so maybe I just speak Duckworth. Um, Good. I, I sort of understood exactly what she meant, which is if he gets the waiver, she'll vote to confirm, but she won't vote for a waiver. 
that right. was my my take from it. And I think that that is a a you know I, I can understand doing that. You know, he is incredibly qualified. He is a historic choice. He has a lot of support, but there is a principle. You know, and so I can understand not wanting to piss off you know, the Congressional Black Caucus, um, Mm -hmm. not wanting to piss off Black voters in Illinois, but also really feeling that you need to stick to this principle of uh, civilian-led military. Um, And so it's a a creative way of squaring the circle. Yeah. You know, how do you register your displeasure while also supporting the incoming administration and this historic choice? and presumably there's I, going to be the votes for a, a waiver in Congress. Like presumably yeah, Duckworth is I, going to be sit, like pretty lonely and taking that stand. I don't, I, well, there have been several Democratic senators who have said that they do not support a waiver. I right. think Joe Biden has a fight on his hands when it comes yeah. to getting Lloyd Austin confirmed. I also think that Joe Biden knew that he was going to have a fight on his hands, which is why he wrote that op-ed in The Atlantic Mm -hmm. announcing Lloyd's nomination. Um, I think that they fully expected, uh, you know, the article I wrote for The Independent was one of several that made the case that Austin should not be confirmed because we need civilian control of our military. And I think that the Biden transition team anticipated that there would be people like me and like Duckworth in the Congress, who would oppose it. And so they were prepared for that. I think he will be confirmed, but I think he'll have, I think he'll have a harder time of it than maybe any nominee except for Neera Tandon. Yeah. So. Neera Tandon, for the crime of having tweeted negatively about Republicans, none of us can ever be Which confirmed to any public the office. Nerve, the <laughs> like, nerve of any of them. Like... Near a tangent, you know, I don't agree with her on a lot, but the nerve of anyone in the Republican Party to complain about someone's mean tweets, like they have have no shame. They're just like they they experience shame as a as an action they perform, not a thing they feel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh. Right. Let's do one more. This is a quote from a Washington Post article entitled Trump team throws in the towel on proving voting fraud. Talking about a a lawsuit that was filed in Texas, the lawsuit, which was for the toward the Supreme Court, the lawsuit, which was filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and is now joined by the Trump campaign and 17 other Republican attorneys general wrongly claims that no presidential candidate has lost both Florida and Ohio and won the presidency. This would be news to John F. Kennedy. (laughs) This would be news to John F. Kennedy in in parentheses, I should say. Like, I do love a parenthetical snark. Again, you know, you want to laugh because it's so obviously inept and incompetent and delusional and divorced from reality. But on the other hand, it's incredibly frightening. You yeah. know, I, I, I don't think enough attention has been paid to what 
Donald Trump is doing and to what the Republicans are doing. And I'm actually less concerned about Donald Trump, who we all knew was a delusional psychopath who, you know, would not accept defeat than I am about the Texas attorney general and his 17 colleagues from red states who signed an amicus brief saying, throw out these votes for Biden in these four states that, that Trump needs. I mean, that, that they are subverting our democracy. It is seditious as far as I am concerned. And I do not use that word lightly, but I do not know any other word to describe trying to invalidate a free and fair election because your guy lost. Like, it's just, it's, it's infuriating, it's terrifying, and it has gone way too far. Yeah. But, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you know that and your listeners probably know that. The problem is there's, there's just nothing to be done about it right now. Yeah. Other than for judges to, to completely, you know, tear these people to shreds. And I hope any judge that, that, that strikes down these lawsuits pulls no punches. I have to, to be fair, I think the judges have been exemplary so far in this. Like, Republican judges, Trump-appointed judges, the opinions that they have been writing and the cases that they've been throwing out have been fire. I mean, these judges, like, they may not agree with me ideologically on any other issue, but, like, one thing about judges is they believe in the in the legal system, right? They Like, they believe in the like the rule of law like that's that's their whole thing like it's kind of their thing right (laughs) like i'm sort of judgy i i like the laws so but yeah they've they've written some blistering and very elegantly clear like i i I wish tv news would report from these uh, quote from these judgments a lot more than they are because they're like very you know in order for us to take the extraordinary action of throwing out ballots, you would have had to provide very compelling evidence, and you provided none. You did not even make an allegation that was that was credible. Like they're very, very, you know, like let me explain to you from first principles what the judicial system is and how this works, right? And like why all right. of the things that you can go with. And I think that's great. And like I, I don't think it's necessarily getting the coverage it deserves, but like. I think Biden is right to, like, from his point of view, to just get on with what he's doing, let everything work its way through the courts, not give Trump the attention that he craves overly much, and, like, just let them be slapped down time and time again by the facts. But what worries me is that when when all that is said and done, we've now got a huge proportion of the U.S. population that will have convinced itself in a fever dream that they live in a country that's not legitimate, under a government that's not legitimate. That's the danger, um, is that a significant portion of the country, you know, 25%, will think of Joe Biden as an illegitimate president. Um, The reason that defeated presidents and former presidents go to the inauguration is to show the legitimacy of the new administration and a continuity of government. And that seems like it's just a a sort of symbolic gesture, but it's incredibly important. And what we're seeing right now is the sitting president who was defeated, casting doubt, not claiming 
president-elect, the soon-to-be president, is illegitimate. Uh, the last time that a plurality of Americans thought that American president was illegitimate and they did not recognize him was in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was elected. And we know what happened after that. I'm not trying to fearmonger. I'm not trying to, you know, sound like the boy who cried wolf here. But I do think that we need to keep in mind what happens when American people, when the American people question the legitimacy of an election, and when the defeated party questions the legitimacy of the election, because it is very dangerous. We are living in a tinderbox. I think that's absolutely right. And I have been feeling for a long time that this time in American history is feeling very Civil War era polarization. The thing that fascinates me, though, is the Civil War, even though I think the South was unbelievably on the wrong side of history, was based on a real conflict. It was based on a genuine fact on the ground, which was the existence of a system, the system of slavery, which was just untenable and a profound disagreement between the two sides about the way of life that was enabled by the system of slavery. Right. It was I do not grounded believe. in material reality. It was grounded in a real truth, you know, about yeah. which there was a profound disagreement. I don't think you could point as as much as identity is as strong in American politics as it has ever been right now. I don't think you could point to an underlying truth that powers it. I don't think there is a equivalent of a single issue that is so profoundly different for any group. I mean, you know, there's gun control and all these kinds of things, but like nothing that's at the level of a systemic quality of life issue that completely defines the way we live or am i wrong no i don't think you are i think that you know earlier in in the hour i said that you know somebody in chicago has more in common with somebody in atlanta than they do downstate illinois um but that doesn't mean that they don't have a whole lot in common with somebody in downstate illinois you know americans are still a fairly culturally homogenous group and we we do have the same wants and the same needs and the same desires. And we're actually not that far apart on the big issues, the vast majority of us, which is why if there is going to be a sort of civil sectarian conflict in this country, I don't think it's going to be on the level of what we saw in the American Civil War. I think it's going to mm-hmm. resemble the Troubles, mm-hmm. um, where you have a, a small but passionate group of, uh, you know, terrorists, yeah. essentially blowing up shopping malls and and creating very isolated acts of, of, of wanton terror. And I think that that's more likely to be what we see if this continues. Because it should be said, the majority of Trump voters have accepted the reality of yeah. defeat. They, they have accepted, you know, that the majority of Trump voters are not off in cloud cuckoo land. You know, they, they, they understand that their guy lost, they took their Trump sign down, and that's that. They might not yeah. like it. They're going to grumble for four years. I would fully expect that. I grumbled for four years under Trump, you know, I mean, but it's the same thing. You know, the left might have talked about you know, uh, Russian meddling and, and, and disinformation, but we we accepted that Trump was the president. Like we accepted yeah. that 2016 was a legitimate election and that Hillary Clinton just lost. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, I think it's important to point out that the majority of, of Trump voters are in the same position now. They don't yeah. like it. They might even really hate Joe Biden with the fiery passion of a thousand sons. But they accept that he is the legitimate president. But it is yeah. this minority of people egged on by Republicans who seem to think that that is their base now. Yeah. Who who really frighten me. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I feel like there's a there's a hopeful and a hopeless way of looking at uh, the way that this partisan divide will go. The hopeless way is like, good God, if it's not based on nothing, if it's not based on anything substantive, we can never resolve it because it's just pure smoke and mirrors and identity politics and this like magnifying glass of ever intensifying feelings that people have about politics that can't never can never be resolved. But the hopeful way of looking at it is that like for all of those reasons, it can be resolved overnight, like people could just decide to stop feeling this way, like, but on both sides, like, we could just decide to feel less angry with each other all the time and settle down a little bit. Like, it would be possible. <laughs> to do that, it, we have to listen to one another. And I think that that's something Americans well, and, have and crucially, become I think, very stop bad listening. at. We need to listen to each other and stop listening to certain most extreme voices within the media that want us to hate each other. <laughs> right. We absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I remember some years ago, maybe 2017, um, a friend of mine, I was still living in Chicago at the time, which is, uh, for, for listeners who don't know, a major Democratic stronghold, um, and not just politically, but culturally very, very left wing. And a friend of mine asked, you know, if I had seen Rachel Maddow the night before, mm -hmm. and I said, no, I don't really watch cable news. And she said, oh, you should. Rachel says exactly what you're thinking. And, and I thought to myself, I don't want to hear somebody parrot back yeah. my thoughts. Like, I'm already like, thinking what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't need Rachel Maddow to tell me what I'm thinking. I want to hear another point of view. Um, and, 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 you know, as a rational thinker, I guess, as a liberal, uh, it, not as a liberal in the American sense, but sort of a, a liberal in the more classical sense, as a socialist, a Marxist, I, I like hearing conflicting ideas because it's how I sharpen my own arguments. So I, I think that we need to sort of go back to that. And we need to understand that we do have the same goals. I think a lot of Republicans, you know, maybe not the senators, but Republican voters, they, they want an end to income inequality too. They want their lives to get better. Yeah. You know, they, they have the same hopes and dreams and goals as Democratic voters. We need to to get back to understanding that, that the the opposition party is just that. They're the opposition. They're yeah. not the enemy. That's the thing. And I think a huge part of the reason why Republican voters, not politicians, politician vote, Republican politicians have their own things going on. But Republican voters dislike and distrust Democratic voters because they think we hate them. <laughs> like, right? Like a big yeah. part of it is just they think we have contempt for them. And frankly, we probably do a lot of the time. I, th and I think we do. I think I did. I did at one yeah. point, you know. Um, I, 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 In fact, I wrote as much after the 2016 election. I literally wrote that I hated Trump voters. I yeah. didn't want to hate them, but I did. And I remember I was in Sheffield at the time, and I went to Sheffield Cathedral, and I met with a Methodist minister to talk yeah. through the fact that I was feeling hate for the first time in my life. I mean, the 2016 election, I think, radicalized a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that it created a lot of very bitter divisions within our country yeah. that have only been exacerbated over the last four years. And, you know, I have try to do as much as I can to sort of repent. I, I'm using very religious language here, but to try and, you know, move away from that sort of anger and bitterness 
And I hope the rest of the country can. And I think a lot of that is going to come down to Joe Biden. He does not have an enviable task ahead of him. Um, You know, healing the wounds in this country is going to be a Herculean effort. And yeah, Godspeed, Joe. Joe. Like, honestly, better you than me. Like, I'm it's it's such a hard job and I am not qualified to do it because like you, I'm still harboring, harboring so many bad feelings in my heart for the people who put me in through this like and i've really experienced it as personal like the things you put me through over the last few years and it just like and but i recognize intellectually how unhelpful that is but i can't not feel it like i'm so angry still it is hard i mean because you know especially for those of us on the left we we, we really tend to to take our politics much more personally because in America, especially, it is so often wrapped up in issues of identity. Um, I know that a lot of people on the British left bemoan identity politics, but in America, you know, you had for years a Republican Party, one party in particular, that seemed to make it its mission to attack LGBT people, to attack women's rights, to attack uh, black civil rights, voting rights. And, and so identity politics in the United States sort of evolved organically. It's not something that there, there are reasons why it happened that way. Um, But I think that we have to take a step back and we have to remember that the Republican party proper, I'm talking about the Senate, the Congress, Republican governors, Republican legislatures, Republican leaders are not Republican voters. And Republican voters and Democratic voters have a lot more in common than we do with even our elected leaders, regardless of party, and that we really do want the same things. We have different visions on how to get there, um, but that not everyone who voted for Trump co-signed everything that he said. They had two options, and they settled for the one that yeah. they felt they could sleep with at night. See, I think I think this is where it gets interesting for me, because I agree with that intellectually, but that's not how I feel. And the reason I don't feel like... I know that it is true that there are a lot of Trump voters who I would like and get along with very well if I met them. I don't meet them very often because I live in London and, you know, all the people that I do meet or come across, interact with, experience is mostly through social media, having political debates. And frankly, it's the worst people of the other side. And they probably think they're seeing the worst on my side as well, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, social media is... I, I I stopped arguing with people on Facebook a long time ago because I realized how completely counterproductive it was. Mm. And those are people I know. Yeah. Like if I am friends with you on Facebook, I've met you in real life. I know you, you're a family member, you're a friend, you're a former colleague. Uh, so arguing with strangers on the internet is just, you know, so counterproductive. Nobody comes out looking good. Um, so I think that that is the challenge of the American people uh, is to try and meet people who think differently in real life. The problem is we are segregating ourselves politically now. And physically. You know, if you, yeah, I mean, I can't recall a single Republican I met the entire time I lived in Chicago. You know, I was there for seven years and everyone I met was either apolitical or a Democrat. I don't remember a single person in 2012 saying that they were voting for Mitt Romney. Yeah. I mean, you know, on the flip side, in 
Leslie County, Kentucky, where I'm from, where I went to high school, 99% of the county is Republican. Yeah. Joe Biden got 400 votes. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, how do you, how do you square that circle? I don't but I think know. it's a, I think it's a particular problem in this era because as the party has become, for me, I used to be of the view that Republican ideologically, ideology, I don't agree with, but I can respect it. Right. That was always my view. Like my parents were Republican growing up. Like I understand where they're coming from. I understand their worldview and I, it's not mine, but like I respect it. And I know that there are decent people like that who have those beliefs. And I have a whole roster of people that I am friendly with who have always been Republican, but they're not now. Right. They're no longer Republicans because they've been so put off by Trump. And yet I mm -hmm. know that there are a lot of people in the country who never used to feel strongly identified with the Republican Party, but do now because of Trump. So like the strain of Republicanism that I had the respect for, I can't, it's gone, right? Like, well, I, and, yeah. and so what's left, it's I don't, not gone. well, the people, the, I don't have any access to it. As yeah, a, I mean, as, this like, is people who vote for Donald Trump, with the peace that I can respect, yeah. I don't come across that. I come across this, only the worst. This gets back to sort of something I said earlier, which is we're living in a time right now where the political poles are shifting. And it's happening okay. in the United States, but it's happening in the United Kingdom, too, I think. Um, although yes, Boris is doing sure. his level best to try and ship them back. He just doesn't mean to. But no, but, um, you know, I, I think that. Um, in the United States, the political polls are shifting and, and who we emerge in bed with politically at the end of this, you know, epoch in our history is going to be very interesting. You know, am I going to end up in a party with Bill Kristol? Like, is that something that's about to happen? If so, God pass me the vodka now. But yeah. um, I, I think that we're seeing that. And so the Republicans that you and I kind of grew up battling against, you know, and debating and arguing yeah. – are turned off by this level of sort of crass, jingoistic, racist, you know, guttural Trumpism. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I never thought I would say this, but I almost missed the religious right. Like, at least yeah. I knew, you know, that they respected the humanity of, of the other side, you know, sort of generally speaking. But they but, haven't gone anywhere they're just fully drank the kool-aid like the same some people of them, some of them but <laughs> not all of them i mean there have been studies that show that republicans who regularly attend church are less likely to embrace the sort of white nationalist rhetoric of donald mm -hmm. trump to sort of you know they're they're more uh open-minded towards immigrants and immigration you know so so they're 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 still there um, a lot of them did drink the Kool-Aid, but a lot of them either voted for Trump and held their nose or they didn't vote. You mm -hmm. know, Trump, I think, attracted a lot of people who were in our party who maybe kept their abhorrent opinions to themselves and then felt that they could sort of flit off to to vote for Trump because, you know, he was offering them what they really always wanted. They'd just been voting for Democrats out of either habit or not liking the sort of economic message of the Republican Party. Yeah, um, there's going to be a realignment for sure. There, there's We're in the middle of a realignment, and I wouldn't be surprised if we emerge with a third party. 
Um, I'm not saying that it's going to be successful overnight, but I think that we might emerge with a permanent third party, sort of like the liberal Democrats. Um, I I don't know. I think American politics will always like <laughs> crystal ball gazing. <laughs> Skyler's made a I think American politics will always devolve to a two party system. It may not, those two parties may not be the Democrats and the Republicans, but I think there are just strong structural reasons for the way our system is set up and the number of veto points that we have yeah, for where you, it makes sense right. for any political coalition to align itself with like the the 50 percent of the population so um you know but we'll see yeah yeah <laughs> Listen, i mean no we, one knows i mean 2021 is a brave new world yeah roll on 2021 oh i'm so done with 2020 i just can't tell you. <laughs> i think that you just spoke for the entire globe karen like <laughs> skylar it's been great talking to you Karen, thank you so much. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy uh, all the holidays to you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah. Happy whatever else. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) Take care. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR, K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, If you have any ability to vote in the state of Georgia um, or know anyone who does, make sure to um, prepare to vote in those January 5th runoff elections for those two Senate races, all important. Um, If not, start making plans for your inauguration. Um, We're going to have a think on this end about whether we might consider running an inauguration event, Um, so stay tuned for that. We'll uh, let you know if we organize something around that date. In the meantime, I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me, and I wish you a very happy week. Mm -hmm.